From the studios at WMFE in Orlando, Florida, this is the Space Exploration Podcast that asks the question, are we there yet? Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. SpaceX successfully launched its Crew Dragon capsule to the International Space Station, docked it to the orbiting outpost, and returned it safely to Earth. While the capsule didn't have a crew, just a test dummy named Ripley, it was a huge milestone for the private space company, which is working with NASA on a contract to send humans to the space station from U.S. soil, the first time since the end of the shuttle program in 2011. That could happen as early as this summer. NASA is also working with Boeing on its Starliner capsule to accomplish the same goal. The Starliner will launch on crewed on a similar mission this spring and would send astronauts soon after. The program has faced multiple delays due to congressional funding, but with SpaceX's successful mission, all signs point to 2019 being the year of commercial crew. To talk more about the milestone and missions ahead, we're joined by Chris Gebhardt. He's the assistant managing editor at NASASpaceflight.com and joins us from Cape Canaveral. Chris, thanks for speaking with us. It's a pleasure to be back, Brendan. Thanks for coming back. Um, So DM-1, that's the name of the SpaceX mission that just launched to the station. It was a big deal. Um, I'm wondering if you can kind of put into some perspective just how big of a deal this was. Yeah, so, uh, oh boy, where to start with this? (laughs) Um, Yeah, so so with the retirement of the space shuttle program in 2011, the United States gave up its ability to launch crew members into space. That includes um, for solo scientific voyages, uh, you know, uh, admissions to the International Space Station and servicing flights to our dear friend, the Hubble Space Telescope. And the goal at that time was that we would transition to commercial crew. And we would transition to commercial providers building the rockets and building the space capsules instead of NASA building everything. Uh, and that would be for our low Earth orbit transportation needs to the International Space Station which in theory would allow NASA and free up money for NASA to uh, build the SLS rocket and the Orion spacecraft, which would do deep space exploration. Um, The issue in 2011 was that when the shuttle program ended, and even though we knew commercial crew was going to be the thing that, you know, succeeded it, the, the the two companies weren't chosen yet. There were no final contracts in place. Um, and we were still years and years and years away with some big uncertainty as to how long that gap in U.S. launch capability would be. So to be standing here now in 2019 with SpaceX having completed the uncrewed test flight of the Crew Dragon and NASA, and the big thing being that NASA admitted last week when Dragon came in and landed and splashed down in the Atlantic Ocean, Within 45 minutes of that landing, the deputy program manager for the commercial crew program was on NASA TV live saying that the Dragon had performed better than NASA had expected and that nothing they had seen in the data from the flight, although all of the reviews still have to take place, nothing in the data said that there were any major hiccups or anything that would prevent the crewed test flight from taking place later this year. And that is amazing, and it's really important, not just because America is, America is launching astronauts again, but because it provides critical redundancy to the Russian Soyuz rocket, which is currently the only vehicle capable of launching crew to and from the International Space Station. 
And we should mention Chris Gebhardt is joining us uh, from Cape Canaveral in between setting up remote cameras for a Delta launch later tonight and and talking with us. Yes. So that's that's the wind that you hear in the background there. He's squeezing us and in. And probably uh, the security helicopter, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, Chris, as someone who has covered this, I mean, th- this is your, your 10th year covering um, space launches from the Space Coast. So you are very intimate with this program. And... and I know as, as a journalist covering this for the years that I have, commercial crew was always six months a year away, six months a year away. There was always delays, mm-hmm. always delays, always delays. What was it like to watch that thing launch for the first time and just realize that, you know, after almost a decade of planning, it's finally happening? Uh, a combination of relief, joy, a um, nervous stomach, <laughs> and... And and a, and a whole lot of crossed fingers and toes. Um, <laughs> uh, it, it, to be very honest, as as I sat there watching uh, DM One lift off, but also an, an an immense amount of pride and gratitude to SpaceX and to NASA. No part of this process for either of these agencies has been easy. It has not been easy for NASA to give up the reins for something that they started and and that they have been up until now the sole provider of in the United States Um, and transitioning more to at first an oversight role and then the purchaser customer role. It it, it hasn't been easy for NASA to do that um, culturally and experience wise. And, you know, it hasn't been easy for SpaceX as easy as they made DM1 look. I mean, they made it look really easy. It was not easy to get to that point. There were design iterations that had to change from what the company wanted on the Falcon 9 to what NASA wanted for some safety improvements. There were, you know, things that NASA wanted added to the Dragon capsule. There were things that NASA wanted taken away from Dragon, most notably the propulsive landing uh, as the main form of landing, though Elon has hinted that the Super Dracos and the propulsive landing of Dragon could be used in an emergency backup in case of a parachute anomaly. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the, the, but despite those difficulties, right, these companies and this agency and this company learned how to work together to get us to this moment, to get us this critical capability, which NASA very much needs for the continuation of the International Space Station program, Mm -hmm. and that SpaceX needs for their longer-term ambition plans for the the Starship and the Super Heavy rocket for Mars colonization and lunar flights. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think um, William Gerstenmaier, the Associate Administrator for Spaceflight Operations at NASA, put it best just before DM-1 launched, where he said, SpaceX has forced NASA to look at things in different ways, and that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what he said. And so rec- both of these organizations recognize the value that each one brings to the table, even though each one of them doesn't do things the exact same way. And I also think it's important to note uh, to our listeners that this is a program that extends multiple administrations, which means multiple agency heads. So, you know, there was a lot of cooks that went into into this uh, program as well. So there, there was a little bit yes. of shifting along the way. Yeah, um, there was there was some shifting. It was primarily the commercial crew element of it was, was definitely an Obama, a President Obama administration element. That that was the driver that that really got that going. Um, and, you know, a, 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 and it's kind of difficult to say 
what effect our current administration uh, here in the United States has had on commercial crew because it was so the designs and everything were so far mature in in 2017 that definitely funding has helped with that in the final couple of years mm-hmm. but you know the, the the same people at NASA have been the main overseers, right? Bill Gerstenmeier and right. Kathy Luters. Um, so from the NASA perspective and from the SpaceX perspective, you know, the same people have been there across the two administrations that began it and then the, and now the administration when it's coming to fruition. So despite the appearance of change through different NASA heads and different presidents, there has been continuity throughout the program, which you say has helped the program. Yes, um, and that even includes the continuity of Congress not funding it as much as they should have, (laughs) which I would not argue helped, but um, continuity nonetheless. Well, Chris Gephardt, you said that um, just moments after it landed, we heard from SpaceX that it performed better than expected. Um, what's the process now? What What's happening to that Crew Dragon capsule? Is it being picked apart and, and analyzed for every little bit and bolt and what happened to it? Or, uh, or are we just moving forward with the crewed version? Yeah, so um, just for clarification, it was NASA who said that Dragon performed better than they expected. Yes, thank you. Yes, yes, sorry. Um, Yes. um, uh, SpaceX has been kind of quiet on that. It may have performed exactly like SpaceX wanted (laughs) and expected it to. Um, uh, Yeah, so this Crew Dragon is back here at Cape Canaveral now. Uh, It was brought back into the Naval uh, Submarine Turn Basin at Port Canaveral, taken off of Go Searcher, the ship that retrieved it. And now they've pulled Ripley out. They're analyzing all of the sensors on Ripley, who was there to measure the strain and stresses and vibration that a crew member would experience during launch, docking, undocking, reentry, and, and splashdown. And um, they're also pulling a lot of, they're also, you know, starting the data reviews from Dragon. Dragon was downloading and downlinking a lot of data as, as it flew. But the structural tests, now that they're looking at an analysis to see exactly how the physical vehicle held up, is part of what they are doing. But they are doing that in tandem with prepping this same Crew Dragon to be mounted on top of another Falcon 9 rocket that will launch in a couple of months from the Kennedy Space Center or Cape Canaveral Air Force Station on the in-flight abort test. And this will see the same Crew Dragon launch on a Falcon 9, and about a minute into flight, SpaceX will trigger the Dragon's abort thrusters, the Super Draco thrusters, which will rip the, safely, rip the Dragon off the top of the Falcon 9 and away from it and to safety, demonstrating that the abort systems, if they are ever needed in flight after the Falcon 9 leaves the launch pad, can function properly. Mm -hmm. And that's another major test, but it's not one that NASA mandated SpaceX do. SpaceX by themselves came to NASA and said, we understand you're okay with in-flight abort modeling being enough to prove to you that it can happen. We want to actually physically test it in flight ourselves. So SpaceX added this milestone themselves, and that's the next one we're going to see, and it will use the same Crew Dragon. Interesting. And, um, yes, and a, and a brand new Crew Dragon is being prepared for the crewed flight, the crew demo flight later this year. Mm-hmm. Safely ripped. And it's under build. Safe, safely ripped away, yes. <laughs> oh, uh, only you, a term you, you can you, use in space flight, right? <laughs> yes, correct. Yes. <laughs> so we're, that's, a, that's a milestone you're looking for there, the in-flight abort test, and then yes. DM2, which would be a crew test. 
of SpaceX. What what about Boeing? What's uh, what's on the horizon for Boeing? What's the next major milestone for the Starliner? So from what we understand, the next major milestone for Starliner is the orbital flight test. So that is their version of DM-1. It's the uncrewed test flight of Starliner, which will launch on an Atlas V, a United Launch Alliance Atlas V rocket from um, Pad 41 here at Cape Canaveral Air Force Station. And it will be, we understand it to be a very similar one-week go-up, perform an automated docking a day after launch, crew goes in it, you check out all the systems, close the hatches, bring it back down, and, and land it. Um, and the difference here being not just on the rockets that they'll launch on, but that Starliner will land under parachute and airbags on land somewhere out in the desert in, in the western United States, whereas the Dragon splashes down in the ocean. But it will be the same type of flight. It's a fully functional Starliner with absolutely everything that will fly on the crew version, just without a crew on board. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, that's upsetting to us that it won't be landing here since we tend to cover Florida stories. Um, but but will, will the OFT-1 um, space capsule come back to Kennedy Space Center for processing or will it remain out west? Do we know? It's, yeah, that's a great question. Um, so the OFT Starliner will come back after it lands to the Kennedy Space Center to one of the former shuttle processing facilities where it will be refurbished and prepared for a crew flight later on. So Boeing is building three Starliners, um, and all those Starliners will be reused multiple times um, for various crew rotation missions. SpaceX's crew capsules are designed to be reused but SpaceX has made the decision that they will build a brand new crew capsule for each crew rotation mission and then take the Dragon, the crew Dragons, and use them as cargo launch crafts for the cargo launch contract side of the SpaceX-NASA agreement that they have out until 2024. So the Starliner is being built and refurbished um, at a shuttle processing, an old shuttle processing facility. Mm-hmm. Um, SpaceX launches the Crew Dragon at one of its pads at Kennedy Space Center that was used to launch shuttles. It's really a testament of the history of human spaceflight at the Kennedy Space Center, is it not? Oh, it definitely is. And you know, for, for so many years, people thought of the Kennedy Space Center as, you know, the, the place where the shuttles were assembled and refurbished and, and launched from, or the place where the Saturns and the moon launches occurred from. But, but the Kennedy Space Center is much, much more than that. I mean, the, the science programs that reside at the Space Center are a huge part of what NASA does here in Florida. But when the shuttle program ended, NASA realized that they had a whole bunch of real estate and NASA could kind of see a bit of that future on the horizon of, of the Burgoyning elements of commercial crew, not commercial crew, of, of commercial space. And they offered up a lot of their facilities to, the, to, to commercial companies. So Boeing has one of the former uh, shuttle processing facilities. The Air Force has the other two where they process the X-37B mini space shuttle, mm-hmm. um, unmanned spacecraft. Uh, SpaceX has Pad 39 uh, has Pad 39A, um, and Northrop Grumman is still working out the the final and finalizing an agreement with NASA to use one of the old shuttle mobile launch platforms and High Bay 2 in the Vehicle Assembly Building and Pad 39B to uh, integrate and stack and launch their Omega rocket. 
Now, Chris, you're someone who's been covering uh, space news for about 10 years um, there, and you've kind of seen uh, these launches and big news events kind of ebb and flow. Um, What's it like now covering space in the era of, you know, just being on the brink of of human spaceflight again? Oh, man, that's such an interesting question. And I'm trying to figure out exactly how to say this so it doesn't sound bad, because I don't mean it to sound bad, but... There's so much going on here right now that, yes, there's that sense of pride, like, you know, the Kennedy Space Center is getting back to doing what it's always been known for. But at the same time, before we get to the first crew launch at some point later this year, you know, my mind right now is very firmly on, on, the, un, on, on the Delta IV satellite launch from United Launch Alliance later tonight, and then the Falcon Heavy in April, CRS-17, a, a cargo dragon in April, the first Starlink mission um, coming up here from SpaceX. Um, th- there's so much going on that it's, it's good to me that it's not just, okay, and the next launch is what human mission, right? That, that you've got so many other really important missions to go. I mean, it seems like every two weeks I'm, I'm down here for something, which is, which is awesome. And something that wasn't the case when, you know, the shuttle program was in its waning years, when, you know, you would have three or four shuttle flights a year, you would have three or four atlases a year, you know, and maybe a delta or two. And that was it. Now we've got something every other week. I mean, we just had the, the Bereshit Israel Lunar Lander mission launch from here. Um, and, and so to me, yes, crew is an important part. Yes, it's an important part of what our space initiatives are going forward. But the really important thing to me is it's not the end-all be-all of what the CAPE does and, and what SpaceX does or what NASA does or what United Launch Alliance does. And that you know, melding together and weaving together of crew missions to the International Space Station, as well as launching all of these important satellites and um, scientific missions. That's what really excites me. And that's what gets me, that's what gets me going in the morning, <laughs> you know, um, and, 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 and why I love reporting on them, because it's not, it's not the same thing. It's all these multiple pieces coming together at the same location. Mm-hmm. And it, and, it, and it all working. Mm-hmm. Um, I couldn't, so to me, crew, crew is an important part of that, but it's not the end-all, be-all of it. I couldn't agree more, and there is so much going on out there that your best source for all of this stuff is Chris G <laughs> on Twitter, so be sure to give him a follow at Chris G underscore NSF. Uh, we've been speaking with Chris Gebhardt. He's the assistant managing editor at nasaspaceflight.com. He's got a very busy day of chasing rockets today with the Delta IV medium. Chris, I'll let you get back to it, but thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. It was a pleasure, Brendan. Anytime. Well, that's going to do it for this episode. Big shout out to the students at Wilson Winds Elementary School in Clarksburg, Maryland. I spoke with them earlier today about the podcast. They listen to the podcast in class. And they pick this song to end the show with. So, kids, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Support for Are We There Yet comes from our listeners. Show your support by visiting WMFE.org slash support. Are We There Yet is a production of WMFE, and our theme music was composed by Kevin McLeod. The conversation continues online. Send us a tweet. We're at AWTYMars. Or if you have a story idea or a guest pitch, send me an email. Are We There Yet at WMFE.org. More Space News is online at wmfe.org slash space. Until next time, I'm Brendan Byrne. 
Thanks for listening.